When we started the Lake Line program in 1990, the very first program was across to Johannesburg. And uh, we had, because Shelley's talking about these extraordinary restrictions, and, uh, and in, in, some, in some period of apartheid, blacks and whites even in some towns walked on separate sides of the street. But uh, this was uh, across to the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, and in the studio, waiting to do the interview, were a black man and a white man. And we discovered that for the first time in the history of the South African Broadcasting Corporation, they had a black man and a white man in the studio together, the same studio, breathing the same air. And, uh, and that wasn't enough. So we got them in there. But just as we were about to start recording, and because it was our first program, we did record about an hour before it was due to go to air just to make sure everything worked. And just as we were about to start, the screen went black. And so behind the scenes, our people are hussing like buggery to, uh, to work out what had gone wrong. Uh, eventually, it was traced to the satellite feed point somewhere out of Johannesburg, where a white technician was so outraged at the sight of this black man sitting in the same room as the white man that he pulled the plug. And so we had to get the international regulator quickly into play to force the SABC to have the line restored. So that was, that was Shelley's South Africa growing up. Now, Kerry's kind of introduced himself, but I'm going to introduce him in a way, OK? <laughs> Our feature guest tonight really needs no introduction. Indeed, he's been the one introducing people to us in our living rooms for many, many years. Kerry O'Brien is one of Australia's most respected journalists. He's won six Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley and the Walkley for Outstanding Leadership in Journalism. In a career spanning more than 50 years, he's worked for a wire service, newspapers, television, and as a foreign correspondent. 33 of those years were at the ABC, where he worked on current affairs programs such as This Day Tonight and Four Corners. He was the inaugural presenter of Lakeline and the editor and presenter of 7.30 Report for 15 years. He's a, the author of a book about Paul Keating, and he's here tonight to talk about his own memoir uh, just out this month from Alan and Unwen. He has also recently taken up the role of chair of the Walkley Awards along with Lenore Taylor. Please welcome Kerry O'Brien from Malone. <laughs> So, Kerry, this is a big book. I knew you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've just read 834 pages plus footnotes. Apart, apart from being the story of your life, it covers a great swathe of contemporary politics. You can look at it from several different perspectives, and I would like to look at that tonight, talk about some of them with you. But I wonder how it was that you approached the writing of it. Uh, you mean why I did it, or how yes, I? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. why well, and where you came you know, where well, you come I'd, from. I'd resisted. Watching. I'd resisted for a long time because uh, uh, I think merely because I was on television and had a public profile. I think, I think um, that's a certain segment um, of uh, of the the writing market, if you like. Publishers like it as a starting point, and obviously they also encourage and are always looking for great writers, but. But at my end of the spectrum, um, um, they love it if somebody actually comes to them with their first book and they also have a public profile. So people like me were often being asked to do memoirs, which I resisted for a long time, until after I'd done the Keating book. 
and, uh, and found that uh, 30 years of writing for television hadn't killed my writing capacity. Um, and, and also, I suppose, it kind of, it got me, it, it made me more aware about, about the extraordinary range of historic milestones that I'd covered as a journalist, because I've been a journalist now for over 50 years. And that's been a quite uh, unique span of history in this sense, uh, that we are in the digital age. And the digital age is a unique age in human history. And that has been a very much, very much a part of the history, and it, of course, particularly now, even more so now than ever. But um, I suppose two things. One, that I've had a ringside seat at so much of history, not just Australian history and not just political history, social history, also international history, um, by good fortune as much as anything, and, uh, and the, through the privilege, uh, substantially but not completely, of working for the public broadcaster, I've had entree to some of those great historic figures, like Nelson Mandela, um, Mikhail Gorbachev, Obama, first black American president, dear Maggie Thatcher, um, and many others. And, uh, and so you put all those things together, coupled with the fact that I'm very conscious of how easily we forget our history, and we forget it at our peril. So I'm hoping that, that whatever else people might get from the book, that it actually serves the purpose of, uh, of reminding us of our history, giving, putting a personal context on it, seeing it against its time, but also seeing it in the context of what we now know about it. And, and when I did the Howard interviews, as I did uh, through his 11 and a half years as Prime Minister, and I must have interviewed him close to 100 times, and uh, the picture that emerges from those interviews when I set it uh, in, the, uh, in the time of the waterfront dispute and the dogs and the balac... You know, the... the, yeah. the, the Patrick the, the guard dogs and the balaclavas on the waterfront or uh, the Iraq war or uh, the way um, the Howard government handled the Wick uh, High Court judgment, uh, which, um, which he took as an excuse to rewrite Paul Keating's Marbo native title laws. But, but not just what was done, but how it was done, and the divisive way these things happened, and how the Tampa was used politically, the, the boarding of the Tampa by the SAS, uh, and, and the kids overboard scandal, and it was a scandal, um, and how that was used politically. Uh, so so th 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 I, th I think that, that there is an importance in seeing these things in their context then, but understanding them in contemporary, in contemporary times. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to come to Howard, because, because you were a 7th report for that almost, you know, for that 15 years, which included those almost 12 years yeah. of Howard. He, he, he does figure large in this book. But I, I think it'd be fair, fair to say as a kind of analysis of the book that it's, it's kind of in four parts. There's this autobiographical part of this at the beginning, which kind of flows into... Uh, your career up until when you joined 7.30. And then there's this really kind of large bulk of the book, which is the, the issues and the people you interviewed when you were at that 15 years at 7.30, then that 15 years, sorry, then the conclusion at the end of that. Oh, and the, and the late yeah, interviews at, yeah. period. What, you know, the temptation for me as an interviewer is to immediately jump into that kind of 7.30 period because there's so much meat in there to discuss. But I wanted to just start a little bit, go back a little bit further to you as a, 
as a kind of like 18-year-old drifting into journalism. It, I mean, it, it, you, you end up at, the, um, at Channel 9 in Brisbane, which is, I mean, it, you say it's a very grandiose name for Channel 9 because it's really only three people or something, isn't it? And, there, were, there were about five journalists in the newsroom, yeah. I mean, there were slightly more than that on the station, but, but uh, this was 1966. Um, and, and the earlier part, Stephen, it's, uh, I mean, it, you can see it as autobiographical. I, I saw it as describing the world I grew up in. Yeah. Because, and, that, and that, to me, the historical thread is the real thread of the book. Uh, the real thread of the book is not my life. I'm a kind of narrator on the times, is what I've tried to do. Yes. But the, that, that, um, that period where I did drift into journalism, I, I mean, my, I had a despairing... My, both parents were despairing. I'd kind of lost my way after school. In fact, I lost my way at school. But, uh, but uh, so I had these three, I call them lost years in the public service, not because it was the public service, but because, because I had no sense of purpose about what I was doing. And my father, in despair, spoke to an old mate of his who'd been a war correspondent uh, and was still connected to journalism. And uh, he knew the guy who ran Channel 9 Newsroom and he said, well, I'll have a look at him at weekends. He can come up at weekends and listen to our police radio and tell us if anything's going on. And that was how I got my cadetship. And uh, what I loved about that was that it was illegal. <laughs> I, was, I, was given, I was given permission to break the law. Probably for the only time in my life. The only time I was given permission. Um, but but um, uh, that was, it was a kind of magic moment, really, for me, because uh, the sense of, the sense of uh, excitement about the daily race that was run against your competitors, the race to get the news first, the race to get the news on your own. And, uh, and watching how the other people were switched on by it and watching how they all helped each other. That was the first experience I had of, of a kind of collegiate approach to work. And I've experienced it many times since, particularly at the ABC, where, where you are all individuals, but you are so much a part of a team. You know, you're all... And, and the spirit of helping each other, uh, those, those have been probably uh, amongst the, 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 the most pleasurable aspects of the job for me, the things that have given me the most satisfaction, apart from occasionally producing something to be proud of. Um, but it was uh, very raw in those days. Television well, had only been... You were a cadet, weren't you? you, you I, mean, you I became the cadet. From that weekend days... start, I became the cadet. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of it seemed to be... A lot of business seemed to be conducted in the pub. Well, because I was the cadet, I was always the last one to get there. But uh, the, the news director was a guy named uh, Kit Delatour, and Kit was a big, brassy guy who... Uh, tried endeavoured to intimidate me and he, in, in those days he often succeeded but that, that was a good experience in itself because I didn't allow myself to be intimidated after that but he, um, he, used, to, he used to come rushing round the corner to try and catch me out not listening to the police radio <laughs> and he reckoned he, he, he developed this syndrome called O'Brien's ear <laughs> um, and, uh, and of course he would constantly threaten to sack me if I didn't know what was on the radio as he came in the room but Kit... Um, Kip was, uh, Kip was a law unto himself, and he was allowed to be a law unto himself because he, uh, he led Nine uh, into becoming the top rating news at the time. So, uh, you know, if Kit wanted to go to the pub at 11, Kit went, went to the pub at 11. And uh, come one o'clock, 
uh, when he needed company and he'd call up old Charlie McCarthy. I thought he was old. I worked out many years later he was probably in his late 40s, um, which is very young, actually. <laughs> it's, all, it's all perspective. And, uh, and, and he'd, you know, Charlie would be instructed to come down and join him at the pub and they, they'd, whether it was one o'clock or three o'clock, they'd be there for the rest of the day. And uh, Charlie might, uh, Kit might watch the news in the bar. Uh, and then they'd graduate from there to the Empire. It was the Empire, I think, in the valley. And, and the next morning when uh, they would pick me up because I'd, I met them in the city and they'd drive me up to Mount Cutha because I had no way of getting up there. And I'd hear the, you know, them recount, reminding each other of their atrocities the night before. You know, like Kit vomiting in the toilet and, and vomiting his teeth out. <laughs> picking them out of the toilet. And, and, and stapling them together the next, the next morning, you know, wonderful tales like this. Instructional, instructional moments in the life of a journalist. And, uh, and so, I mean, in those days, there was a lot of drinking. There was a lot of, lot of drinking in the game, you know. I mean, yeah. the, the sort of the, the crusty old police roundsmen who were, and they were men nearly always in those days, um, and they would drink with the cops. And in Sydney, it was in the early openers. They'd start with the early openers. And sometimes the, the journos on the industrial round would nick across for a couple uh, with, uh, with one, of the, one or other of the trade union leaders for a couple of early, you know, a couple of early beers, get a story, knock it out, back to the pub. It was part of the culture, big part of it. You know, there were a lot of functioning alcoholics in journalism in those years. Um, and some of, them, some of them the best in the business. And there was a kind of a, a kind of a glamour in all of that for me, you know, as this young young kid. Um, and I got a bit sucked into it. I could have, uh, I, I sort of woke up in my probably around 24, 25, and I realised that it could be a real slippery slope, and I pulled back enough. Yeah. I mean, the journey through your career, which is really fascinating, the book, as you say, and it, it is a picture of the time that that you're doing, moving from television to print journalism and back again, shuffling between commercial channels and the ABC, finding your feet. One of the decisions you made fairly early on in the piece seems to me quite extraordinary because, and, and you talk about, I'm going to come back to the dismissal in a moment because I want to talk about that, but after the dismissal, two years later, you go to work as Gough Whitlam's press secretary. Yes. So you're actually going to leave journalism and move over to the other side. Which some of my friends thought was suicidal. And in a sense it was, but not quite. So I jumped over a very low cliff. Um, uh, look, I, I've explained it in the book, but it was um, partly um, a kind of uh, a malaise that I'd, that I'd struck. Um, uh, the Liberal government was punishing the ABC because they perceived us to be biased. No, no. <laughs> this is 1976. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the first, the first Howard, the first Howard, the first Fraser budget, um, hit the ABC, and and this was even though we had friends at court, and those friends at court were, were Country Party, now National Party, but they were then Country Party uh, leaders. People like uh, Peter Nixon was uh, was Country Party, and he was the minister for the ABC. Um, uh, Sinclair and um, and even Doug Anthony, and I mean Doug thought anybody to the left of him was a communist. But they understood the value that the ABC brought to the bush. Yeah. 
and uh, and they they did seek to protect it from the worst damage that might have been done. Uh, but so it was a little bit of that and uh, and the kind of anger that went with that. But it was also a sense I had for a brief period where I felt that I was the voyeur sitting on the fence reporting on other people doing things. And I was fascinated to get a sense of what it must be like on the inside, how it worked on the inside, and also a fascination uh, for Whitlam. Even though, even though he was on his way to the, uh, you know, to the, to the guillotine. Well, that, uh, that's the thing. I mean, uh, to, to have access to Whitlam at that time of his life, I mean, must have been an extraordinary privilege, but it also must have been devastating in a way to see him on the way down. On, on it wasn't devastating. I mean, I knew. I mean, I wasn't... I was 30... I think I'd just... I might have been 31, just turning 32. Uh, I wasn't completely wet behind the ears then. I could see what was happening. Uh, uh, Fraser was going to call an early election. He was going to hit Labor while they were at their weakest. Uh, nobody really thought for a moment that Gough could come back from 75. And uh, uh, so I knew it would be a short but merry ride. And, uh, and I still saw value in doing it. Uh, and I've never regretted it, I must say. I mean, I, uh, I didn't have a grand desire to keep working on there, and I only did because the ABC wouldn't have me back. I'd become like kryptonite at that point. <laughs> not, not that the managing director, Talbot Duck Manton, was Superman by any means. He'd <laughs> um, have been better as a diplomat in a faraway post. <laughs> smoking his pipe. <laughs> we had a very interesting conversation when I... Uh, he gave me an audience where, where I went to explain to him that he couldn't afford not to have me back. <laughs> and, and I did it slightly tongue-in-cheek and I realised it would have sounded extraordinarily brash, but it, the truth of it was that actually, you know, that I'd, I'd learnt an enormous amount in a short space of time at the ABC. I'd started at this day tonight. I'd moved as a... I'd come from a Sydney newspaper. It was uh, two years two and a half years working at this day tonight, and then I'd gone to work for Four Corners uh, for a couple of years. And, uh, and really, you know, you kind of bottled that experience. It was wonderful. Uh, and what I was, I was trying to suggest to him that there was a way that they could have had me back and I wouldn't touch politics for long enough for things to die down. And, uh, and, if I, and I would demonstrate in my reporting that I wasn't Joseph Stalin. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that things would gradually settle back. And he puffed on his pipe and agreed with me that it would be a shame for me not to come back and he'd get back to me. And about a month later, I got this beautifully written letter uh, telling me that there just wasn't anything on offer at the moment. So, and there, I think there were about four occasions when various other people asked me if I'd come back to the ABC and each time it was stymied. But um, uh, so uh, I, I didn't have a burning thing to kind of stay through it. I'd almost seen enough, even in six months with Gough, to understand how the system worked on the inside. Uh, but I wasn't devastated by what happened. You know, the, thing, the, the, the one thing that really kind of hit me uh, was um, discovering when I went along to a national campaign committee meeting on Gough's behalf with our um, principal private secretary, a guy named Richard Butler, who ultimately became the Richard Butler, who was the disarmament ambassador and then the chief weapons inspector for the UN. And uh, Richard and I attended this meeting where Rod Cameron, who was the pollster for the Labor Party at the time, explained to all the national sec all the state secretaries and the other people involved in the campaign planning 
And so even getting entree to that was fascinating for a journalist. Um, and Cameron says, look, well, you know, the first thing to understand, and that you all know it anyway, is that Goff is unelectable. And then he said, the only person in the country who is less popular than Goff is Margaret. <laughs> and I'd come to know Margaret by this point, and I'm thinking, what's Margaret done? She was a delightful woman. She was just quality, you know, dripping from a pause. She was a highly educated, highly intelligent, uh, highly intelligent, highly motivated woman who was incredibly compassionate and caring and witty and all kinds of things. And as the wife of the Prime Minister, she'd, she'd been all of those things. She had her own television pro. She had a Tonight Show at one point. She had a column in one of the women's magazines. Uh, she led the Australian delegation to the women, the, international, the first international women's conference in Mexico City. She was a very accomplished woman. She was a social worker by training and qualification. And, and I just could not get over that. Uh, now, you know, the great irony is that, uh, is that years later you'd, you'd be sitting in a theatre and suddenly the whole theatre would erupt in applause and you'd look around and there were Goff and Margaret coming in. And the applause was at least as much for Margaret as it was for Goff. Which brings, brings us to the dismissal, because there's a, a whole chapter that you've got in this book about the dismissal, which I found really fascinating to read. It became a different book when I was writing that. It was interesting, really, to me. And because, I mean, basically what you're saying in the book is that this was a coup d'etat. Yes. That, that what, what John I didn't. Could... I, I, was never, uh, I, I was never a conspiracist, um, and... and you, I could see the argument as to why it could be described as a coup, and Goff certainly called it a coup. It was a putsch. <laughs> a coup. Um, but uh, but when, when, you look, it, when you look calmly and analytically at what we now know, particularly after the terrific detective work of... Um, of um, Jenny Hocking. Yeah. Who's, 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 who I believe is before the federal... Well, she's, she's appealing. Yes. She's appealing the original decision to deny her access to what are being called Kerr's personal correspondence with the Queen. There's nothing personal about it. He wasn't ringing to tell her what the weather was like in Canberra. He was ringing to discuss affairs of state. And, uh, and in particular, he was, he was writing to... Uh, whether he was writing specifically to her about this... Uh, there are some things that Hocking has uncovered. Uh, there are some things that are in these papers that she believes will tell us a lot more in that correspondent about whether Kerr was telling her exactly what he was planning to do. He was certainly telling others what he was thinking about, including Prince Charles. And uh, um, so there is a lot of stuff that she's unearthed. Uh, but the mo one of the most important... You know, the Queen is almost secondary to this in a way. I know Jenny will violently disagree, but... The, one of the things that I thought was, was the, 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 the most damning exposure of it all, we know that the Chief Justice of the High Court, Sir Garfield Barwick, was, was asked by uh, Kerr to give him advice about the dismissal. And he gave him advice, uh, and, and Barwick was careful to insist that his visit be recorded at the gate because he didn't want to be accused subsequently of having done it um, um, in secret, which, which could have then been seen as part of a plot. But what Jenny has, uh, has exposed is that Sir Anthony Mason, who was another High Court judge and subsequently 
ironically appointed by a Labor government, became the Chief Justice himself of the High Court. Sir Anthony Mason was in conversations with Kerr going back months before yes. the dismissal, I mean, improperly, in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, far more kind of qualified to talk about the law. Um, they were discussing these things. Not when there was no... It was no, before the loan scandal. It was, it was before, before the loan scandal. It was before any of this stuff. And, uh, and, and, and this remained secret for years afterwards. It would have been absolute mayhem if that had been known at the time. And it might have actually... It, it might have caused Gough to take a different approach had he known that. I mean, Gough had enormous respect and trust in the institutions. He had respect for the institution of the parliament, which was why he didn't, you know, lock the door of his office and send out the message that he was, come and get me, you know, because this is an unconstitutional act. He didn't go to the High Court. And this is part of the impropriety of it, in a sense, because, because impropriety, you know, some might quibble about the word impropriety, but, but um, uh, there was every possibility, even though Mason and Barwick kind of dismiss it, there was every possibility that, well, I'll come back to that, there was every possibility that, uh, that, that Barwick and Mason would have found themselves sitting in judgment on, a, um, on a, uh, a claim to the court that this was unconstitutional, that the dismissal was unconstitutional. And, uh, and in fact, Mason, in, the pre in, in one of those early conversations, where he's actually, uh, where, where they're putting together a secret group of, of constitutional lawyers uh, under the, you know, under the kind of, under the roof of the ANU, uh, to talk about matters of this kind. And Mason says to, uh, to Kerr, Perhaps I shouldn't be a part of this because it might, be it might be judiciable in front of me. So he's actually acknowledging that he could be sitting on the High Court and the case come to him. So he removes himself from that, but he's still talking privately and secretly to Kerr. So there are all these elements that when you pull them... To, and there's the, there are the various channels to and from the palace. Um, so coup, I think you can call it a coup. Yeah. Well, certainly the case... And that's without going to any yeah. of the kind of conspiracy stuff about Richard Nixon and whether the Americans had any involvement at all. Yeah. I, I haven't touched on that because it's a whole other kind of can of worms and perhaps we'll never know that. Yeah. Except for one thing, you know, um, Goff... <laughs> so you, you want to know why this book is long? Um, when Jimmy Carter was president, he sent his, his Secretary of State... And I can never remember whether he was Warren Christopher or Christopher Warren. It was Warren. <laughs> I think it was Warren Christopher. Uh, and, and Christopher is on his way to uh, an ANZUS meeting or something of that ilk in New Zealand. And he makes contact with Goff's office and asks to meet Goff at the airport discreetly in Sydney. And Goff goes to the meeting. And, and the substance of the meeting, because Goff immediately recounted it to Richard Butler in the car on the way back. Uh, that uh, Christopher told Goff that he was instructed by the President to apologise on behalf of the nation uh, for, um, for uh, American interference in Australian politics. And no-one has been able to uncover anything more than that. I made an approach to, uh, to Carter's office to try and get access to his library, to that part of his library, which is confidential and got knocked back, and I know others have had the same reaction. Um, so, you know, we're just left to ponder, and some people will come
come up with kind of various scenarios, and it's a, it, it is a fascinating thing, but the chapter was already too long, and you didn't want a 900-page book. <laughs> so look, let, let's skip forward a little bit now to 7.30 and to Howard, because, it, I mean, because it's 12 years, almost 12 years, and it includes Tampa, it includes all those different things. You're interviewing this man, as you say, hundreds of times. No, not hundreds. A hundred. A hundred. A hundred times. Believe me, that was enough. Well, I... <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm trying Probably to for him too. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to phrase. Yeah, phrase sorry, him. mate. There was one time. <laughs> you know how he, 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 if you remember any of those interviews, he usually used to answer. I would say, sorry, uh, Mr. Howe, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, a pleasure, Kerry. And then it became, for a brief period, always a pleasure, Kerry. And then uh, one night when I said, look, I'm sorry, Mr. Howe, we're out of time. He said, uh, what a pity. And that, that had been a fairly willing interview, that one. Sorry, Stephen. No, no, I, I mean, look, I'm I was trying to think of a polite way to phrase it, but uh, let me just come up with this straight. How was it to be interviewing this man who was often blatantly lying? Um, now, I'm, and I'm thinking particularly about, well, the children overboard is one of them, but I'm also thinking about the Iraq situation. Well, this is the thing. Um, uh, I can't think immediately. I mean, John Howard was extremely careful with his language. Uh, it was a lawyer's language as well as a politician's language. And if, I mean, I'll give you a for instance. When uh, Pauline Hanson made her maiden speech, and it was a while after she got in before she made her maiden speech, and she'd, uh, she'd, she'd been a bit of a bombshell, not just for Labor, but for the Liberals, because she'd been uh, basically expelled from the party. She had the pre-selection, Liberal pre-selection for the seat of Oxley in Ipswich. Um, she'd, uh, she was basically uh, had her candidacy withdrawn uh, after she made racist comments. And, uh, and then she ran as an independent and she won the seat and it was something like a 19% swing, huge swing. And so that sent alarm bells. What, what, what we call a Queensland swing, I think. Oh, no, I, if, if, if the implication in that is that Queensland is a particularly racist... Oh, no, no, I didn't oh, mean... Good. I did, sorry, I didn't mean... No, I, what I was meaning was that, that Queensland has been become known now for its huge swings, you know? Mm, well... People of Wentworth know something about huge swings. <laughs> um, I, once, I once did a program for Four Corners about are Queenslanders really different and if so, why? <laughs> and I felt I had some right to do it because I was a Queenslander and I wasn't actually setting out to poke fun at Queensland at all. Uh, it used to give me the shits, to be honest, that, that um, living in Sydney, the number of people who just assumed that there was something about Queensland that was different to the, to the rest of the country and that Queenslanders were particularly redneck and they were particularly ignorant and they were particularly racist. And I've met just as many racists anywhere else in the country as I ever have in Queensland. <laughs> anyway, that's an aside. So we were, we were talking about John Howard. I'll give you this so handsome. Yeah. So, well, in this instance, you interrupted me. <laughs> 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 And that's a dangerous thing because I'll just go off on another tangent. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Hanson made her maiden speech in which, she, uh, in which she went off against Asian immigration and she went off against, against Ab Aboriginal privilege. And, uh, and Howard was asked, 
um, well, do you support what she says? And he says, he doesn't take the opportunity to say, I will never support racism. I will never support racist remarks. I can't agree with what she's had to say. He left that. What he said was, well, I certainly agree with her right to say them. Right? So what that was about, as I read it and as others have read it, uh, was not alienating those parts of the Conservative constituency that had abandoned the Liberal Party, at least for that moment, and gone across to her. Yeah. And so she was the lightning rod for that kind of disaffection. And they wanted those people back. So, so his strategy, unlike some of his most senior colleagues, was to have a kind of have his cake and eat it. Yeah. Whereas Alexander Downer, um, uh, Peter Costello, and even Tim Fisher, the, 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 the Deputy Prime Minister and National Party leader, uh, looking his own constituents in the eye, spoke out strongly uh, against her. And they were saying to Howard, we've got to, we've got to meet this head on, and uh, Howard was playing his... And his senior, the senior bureau, certainly senior uh, diplomats, were arguing with him that this was doing huge damage in Asia, but that was the line he took at that time. And so, so he's very... If you look through uh, the language he used around those tricky issues like tamper and kids overboard and so on, and Iraq, he sort of tiptoes through the tulips in his own way and leaves little evidence behind. Now, am I saying that this man was extraordinarily manipulative? Um, I think each individual has to draw their own conclusion about that. But, um, but I, th I thought he was, he was all on those kinds of issues. He was always very careful how he chooses his words. And I think some of that was about being sure that he couldn't be accused of this or accused of that. So I don't know that... Uh, I, I don't think you can actually say that he blatantly lied. But I, was, I, I can't remember a time where I felt comfortable saying, I've caught you out in a lie. But, uh, but certainly when you pursue... You know, just one more issue that as, an, as an example. Um, with the kids overboard. Now, by the time... Th th this, this ran with, with damaging headlines for Labor... In the, in the sense that they were kind of all over the place on this issue. Beasley was leader and Be Beasley was supporting legislation for a minute, then he wasn't supporting, then he was supporting. And uh, Howard was playing him off a break. But right through the month of that campaign, this issue was running strongly. And through that month, um, it, was being, it, it was very quickly accepted in some quarters of, of the armed forces that no child was ever thrown overboard. The photographs that Peter Reith um, released to demonstrate that at least a kid had been thrown overboard was in fact the day after the allegation of a child being thrown overboard and was not of a child who had been thrown overboard. Everybody on board the ship, the naval vessel, I think it was the Adelaide, knew it. It was confirmed through the hierarchy of the Defence Forces. It was going back through various channels to Peter Reith's office as Defence Minister. Reith was told directly uh, and a subsequent select committee of inquiry into this found that there were 14 occasions when either Reith and or his senior advisers were told there were no kids overboard. And yet, um, uh, Peter Reith would have us believe that at no stage did he think this was important enough as it ran hot uh, as, and the journalists were getting tougher and tougher in their questioning, uh, trying, you know, demanding the evidence for the claims. 
but Reith felt that at no stage should the Prime Minister be informed that no child had been thrown overboard. And there is an interview I did with him, and I've taken an extract from it, and I'm paraphrasing it now, where, uh, where he says to me something like, well, Kerry, if nobody told me, how could I know? OK, so move to another sphere for Iraq, for instance, because you have Colin Powell addressing the Security Council in, in the United Nations. A little, little known fact about that, which I thought was extraordinary, is that Picasso's Guernica, there is a kind of huge tapestry behind it. In order for Colin Powell to deliver the briefing, which was the justification for the weapons of mass destruction and the war, they covered it. They covered Guernica with a sheet. They weren't prepared to lie in front of, in front of Guernica, which I, I, don't, I, I don't know what that means, but it's just a little known fact about what happened there. But the evidence that Colin Powell gave a lot of people in the world, myself included, had read that it was fabricated. Well, years before. Um, years before. Be a, a lot, lot of it. Look, it was thin. <coughs> it was certainly no smoking gun, and uh, and conversations that had been picked up amongst uh, people in Iraq, which which were interpreted uh, as evidence that they were discussing um, um, weapons of mass destruction. That they were, I think there was an implication that they might be hiding them or moving from one location to another. I've forgotten. But, but, um, but the fact is that that was seriously overcooked, uh, that there were people saying, um, and, and who knew inside the intelligence world, that this, was, that this kind of evidence was deeply unreliable. Yes. So a fabricated, um, uh, certainly overcooked. But, certainly overcooked. Uh, but... You know, you describe it in the book as the and, most... And where the fabrication the most... was, where the fabrication was, was that one of the big sources of intelligence that, that some of those neocons were relying on uh, were the, were the uh, Iraqis in exile who desperately wanted to get back to Iraq and rule the country. Yeah. And that was deeply discredited, but of course the neocons seized on this. And that, th there was also evidence that came from interrogations in Germany of a uh, defector uh, and there were big questions, Mark, about that, but that was blown up as well. And Powell himself subsequently uh, acknowledges that, uh, that he was let down. But, uh, but, but Powell, you know, Powell had the opportunity to say, this is not good enough, and he went with it. He went with it. But, you know, the, 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 the real concern for us, it's important to understand uh, the way the Americans went into war. It's important to understand how Britain as their ally went, but it's most important for us as Australians to understand how Australia got there. And we're still there. Yeah. And, and, so and we've that, still got a presence in Afghanistan as well. And that's the point I'm coming to, because Howard took us there. And it was, it was, it was in but some I mean, ways... The irony about this is that Powell was the one person inside the system trying to be the voice of reason against yeah. Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and that other guy. Um, um, doesn't matter, you know, they're, they're all of an ilk. But, uh, but Powell was the one who, and, I, and there's a, 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 I go through an interview I did with Powell um, when he was contemplating running for president against, um, against Bill Clinton in his second term, and uh, at that point Powell was the most respected public figure in the United States, more respected than Clinton. And, uh, and we were discussing his options at that point, and about two weeks later he announced that he wasn't going to run. 
Um, I found it a fascinating interview on all kinds of fronts, but, but, but on Vietnam, you know, the stuff here on Vietnam which just underscores yet again what an immoral war that was and what a lost war it was. And I mean, talk about immorality. Um, we did a program when Robert McNamara, who, who was the first kind of architect of prosecuting the war as the, as the head of the Pentagon when Kennedy was president, and, uh, and he was there for the first five years of the war, believing privately that the war could not be won and that they should not be there because they were propping up a corrupt regime uh, and various other reasons. But fundamentally, McNamara believed America could not win that war. And then at the other, the, the other bookend to the war was a guy named James Schlesinger, who was Nixon's Defence Secretary, who also believed that America couldn't win the war. And while he's believing this, and Nixon, who know, and this is all documented, Nixon, who knows that their massive bombing campaigns on North Vietnam had failed and could not change the course of the war, and Kissinger, who also knew that, who was his national security uh, chief, these three people knew it when Nixon announces that he's going to double the bombing. He doubles the bombing. Now, how many hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of that? I don't know. We know the, we know the figures overall, and they're massive. But Powell's, Powell um, knew a great deal of this, if not all of it, uh, when, when he would have known it all by then. He's become the, the, the chief... Um, the, the chief of the, um, of the armed forces. Uh, he's been secretary of... He served three presidents. And, uh, and he's written... Uh, it's all there. He's written that Vietnam was an unwinnable war. It was a giant mistake. Lays out all the reasons. Acknowledges the lies that the armed forces told to try and cover up the fact that it was a losing war says, talks about uh, using that as a template about how not to go into a war. And now you look at Iraq and you lay the template of Iraq alongside the template of Vietnam and you just shake your head. Yeah. So this was the guy who was trying to be the voice of reason inside the place. And guess who they go to as their one credible figure in the administration to stand up at the United Nations and try and sell the story. Yeah. And so he paid his price too. But, you know, you, know, you, pick, you pick your bed, yeah. you lie in it. So look, I'm interested in your in your interviewing style as well because you you've been doing this for for a long time. There's a fantastic quote that you give kind of for yourself and against yourself by Tony Squires in the middle of the book, which I'd just like to read to the audience here for a minute. Um, he, Tony Squires is writing about their 1998 election campaign. The only person, Tony writes, who seems to be vibed by the whole process is the ABC's Kerry O'Brien, who actually isn't human. <laughs> The glint comes in his eye as politician after politician props himself uh, or herself onto the rotisserie for a 7.30 report basting. <laughs> the best bit, though, is watching the gormless pollies from one side smiling and nodding as their opponents are carved up, then seeing the surprise in their eyes as the pitchfork is turned on them with the red-haired devils advocating his way up their personal corridor of power. It's a great piece of writing about them anything else. <laughs> Slightly mixed metaphor there, but terrific. Look, the, the reason the reason that's in there is because it's it's part of a chapter about this so-called bias at the ABC, and I was pointing out that uh, that that there are some people who've never quite understood the concept of a devil's advocate, 
And so there were really some people out there watching the program who just assumed that whatever question I asked was a reflection of my own personal views. So, um, so uh, I was often, well, I was always, if, if I was doing a one-on-one interview, if, if, as opposed to people, two people from either sides of the political fence, if, it's, if you've got them there together, you let them run their arguments against each other and the public makes a decision about which one they believe or perhaps neither. Um, when it's a one-on-one, -on -one, there's, there's an onus on the reporter, on, on the interviewer, to try and keep them honest. Yeah. And, and so a part of that process is you, you put yourself in the opposite position to what they're arguing and so you use the devil's advocate question to test them. And, uh, and so the, the points that he was making are the very points that I'm hoping that any intelligent person really understands. A, the whole point of a devil's advocate question, that it does not reflect the personal view of the person asking the question. Secondly, that, that uh, in the eyes of this observer, I gave both sides an equal skewering if I could. And, and so, how was that for you, though? I mean, it's interesting because sometimes you were giving people a real skewering. There's the interview that you did with John Hewson where you had been given the polling data from his own party that they had kept from him. Somebody mm. has leaked this data to you and that they've kept it yeah. from him. And, and so you bring this out and there is John Hewson squirming in front of you. And, and as an audience, we are kind of delighted because we're desperate for... A, a politician to speak the truth to us just for a moment, just for an instant, we would like yeah. to have some, some truth from this person. But he's also a human being and, and he's right there across the table from you and yeah. you're just destroying him. How is well, that for you? Uh, no, I, I wasn't destroying him. The, the person who leaked the Liberal Party polling was destroying him. No, but you're, but you're, the, man who's, you're the man who has to bring it to him yeah. in front of everybody. And, and in a way, um, I, I didn't enjoy suddenly being in the process, as opposed to sitting slightly outside the process asking the questions. It kind of, um, I mean, there was this kind of stricken look in his eyes that I didn't enjoy as he, as he realises that he's been set up and why haven't they shown him this polling? And uh, I, I, um, I've said towards the back of the book actually that if, if the John Hewson we know now and see now in public life was the John Hewson who ran against Keating in 93, he would have almost certainly become Prime Minister. But uh, um, that, well, I don't regard that as a skewering, you know? I mean, uh, in fact, when I actually approached him to do that interview, I knew that there was a lot of stuff going on inside the Liberal Party, and I was getting information from people. In fact, I had a Time magazine column at that time, and I'd already written some of this material in the Time magazine column, and he called me down to his office and uh, started to take me to task for it. And he actually wanted me to tell him who my sources were. And then he started naming people, while at the same time denying that there was any real issue, he suddenly starts naming people to me as my potential sources, uh, who he obviously was regarding as his internal enemies in this process that wasn't happening. And, uh, and so he was in some kind of denial. And then because I knew all of this was going on and had written about it, I then invited him onto the program. And it was only very late the night before we were pre-recording that interview the following afternoon for that night's late line, uh, this source inside the Liberal uh, administration um, 
sent me the polling. Well, A, he'd told me about it and I said, show it to me. And he sent me the polling. And uh, that was the end for Houston because he was already in deep trouble. He was on the skids. It was only a matter of, I think, I think the only difference it made to Houston was that he might have hung on for another two or three months. And I, the only reason he would have hung on for another two or three months was that I think those forces that were moving against him um, wanted a bit more time to work out succession. And they hadn't quite worked that out, as was obvious because Alexander Downer became their opposition leader. <laughs> I, look, and you've given a, a really good answer to that, but I, I still am curious about this because, I mean, here I am having a conversation with you, and my, the intention with my conversation is to kind of listen to you as close as you can to bring out what you are. But your interviews with the 7.30 report, they're more gladiatorial. In different some way. interviews, though, Steve. You're, different. You're, you're actually trying to... You, uh, and it's I mean, very, we're having a conversation, yes. but we're trying to. <laughs> <laughs> I keep interrupting you. That's, no, we're, we're having a conversation. Yes. That's what we have set out to do. But when yeah. I was doing those interviews, and bear in mind that the great enemy of television is time. I mean, if I've got half an hour with um, Alexander Downer, there's a fair chance that he won't look all that great by the end of it. <laughs> but if I'm doing a nine-minute interview with Alexander Downer, uh, then he knows that if he gives two-minute answers, I get four questions. Uh, or I'm forced to interrupt him. And the more I'm forced to interrupt him, he knows uh, that a certain number of people in the audience, and they might be conservatives, they might be sort of uh, or they might be swingers who don't like well, swinging members <laughs> who um, who uh, um, don't like what they see as rudeness, you know, or yeah. aggression. And so I'd, I've never set out to be aggressive in an interview. I think the the perception of aggression only comes when you have to interrupt because they are not just respecting you; they're they're, they're disrespecting the audience. Yes, they're disrespecting the Australian electorate. And uh, the number of times, you know, I could tell you within a minute what their message was that they were going to try and keep pumping through the interview. And I gave one example with Howard. There are at least five references about trust. And it was no doubt because the polling, it must have been the internal polling in the Liberal Party had told them that Keating's vulnerability was trust. And it was related to a couple of budgets. It was a stinker of a budget immediately after the 93 election that Keating was still wearing when he went to the poll in 96. So, you know, there are the... the I, honestly, I could have asked him his views on, on the latest style in bikinis, and he would have brought it back to trust. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, they know long answers will force you to interrupt and that that will assist them with a certain constituency in the audience. Um, uh, they'll, they'll give a long answer as much as they can if their back's to the wall and they want to limit your questions. They might try and lead you up a tributary. They'll obfuscate. I mean, there are all kinds of... Yeah. And, and there was one particular technique that I thought Howard for a brief time developed, a while actually, which was quite clever, really. I mean, I won't go into it now because it takes a while to tell, but... Um, um, wily bugger. No, no. <laughs> I, Tim Fisher once in the middle of a late line interview and he was really stuck. He was really in a corner and he couldn't wriggle out. And uh, he said, Kerry, I could go on, but I know you don't have the time. 
So this is, and I said, take all the time you like. <laughs> so we are getting a bit. And I've got. I mean, oh, sorry. There, there's so no. There's so many things. This is such. This covers such a broad period. And I have. I've got pages of questions that I made, wrote while I was reading the book. But the most difficult part of the book for me to read was the whole business about Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. You know, for me, that was it. I found it really difficult to read it because it was so painful. The the whole. Um, d- unraveling of the Labour Party in front of us, because they were a good government. They were doing things, they had a vision, they had some really good ideas on how to, how the country should look. And they Except were you to... had a Prime Minister who wanted to, who wanted to uh, get through a 10-year programme in three years, and it certainly raised that expectation in the public. Uh, and then, then, of course, dashed a lot of hopes when he completely turned his back on the great moral issue of our time, you know, so... Yes. Um, as, as we know, uh, with a lot of urging from Julia Gillard. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that, that was, that was going to be the next question, really, in some ways. So, so I'm, I'm Look, the, 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 thing is, the thing is that both of those leaders let their party down and let their supporters down, both of them. Yes. And, uh, and, and in the case of Rudd, complicated guy. Uh, I did read um, all of the first volume of his book because I interviewed him uh, for his launch of that book. And I thought it was a well-written book. Uh, and I thought, uh, uh, and I've read, um, I've read um, some of the second volume and what I read was also well-written. I, think, I, I don't think he served himself well by, by um, um, taking so long to write it so that when he suddenly wants to explain what really went on from his side and how he was basically chewed up and spat out, uh, now just makes him kind of bitter and unable to move on. When, as he says, well, really, it was only a small part of the book, but he knew when he wrote it that that was the part that journalists would focus on. Uh, so, so that was a mistake. But, but uh, I have enough sources left inside that party to have the view uh, that, uh, that, that Gillard made a great mistake uh, when she allowed herself to be persuaded by some pretty mediocre people inside her party uh, who I don't think were acting in the best interests of their party when they persuaded her to be a part of a process of removing him and her becoming Prime Minister at that time. I think that, you know, we talk about the Iraq intelligence being the weapons of mass destruction intelligence being overcooked. I think um, uh, enough credible sources inside that process who've told me that some of that at least was overcooked about Rudd's behaviour, that yes, he, uh, he didn't respect uh, his senior public servants and some of the senior defence people uh, sufficiently that he would leave them waiting for too long outside his office while he was on about other things, or that he would be asking people to do the impossible with meeting impossible deadlines on speeches that were never made or that were not followed and so on. But the stuff about, uh, about a, a chaotic cabinet or no cabinet consultation, I'm told from somebody who was inside that process, who I trust, that that was seriously exaggerated. Uh, so uh, he was not going to lose that election. On the evidence that we know, knew at that time, he was not going to lose that election. I don't believe there was an adequate excuse for doing that and look at the impact it had. The legacy on both of them uh, and uh, the legacy on Gillard's prime ministership. If she had waited 
if she had let him run to that election and win uh, and put him on notice that his behaviour was unacceptable and he needed to consult more widely, he needed to be uh, more efficient uh, in the process and the system side of government, that, uh, that they would move on him, put him on notice, and if halfway through that next term he hadn't pulled up his socks and they moved on him, it would have been a different equation. The people of Australia who had voted him in in 2007 would have at least had the opportunity to decide one way or the other in 2010. Uh, and it would have been a different equation had they sacked him through that next term or had he been forced to stand down. So that's, that's that part of the equation. I mean, uh, it was... Um, uh, in, in terms of the kind of talent that was around the table, uh, they, they pulled off this kind of economic miracle in a sense and they threw a lot of money at it to do it. But we were virtually, I think there might have been one, possibly two other countries who survived the 2008 uh, global financial crisis without going into recession. But Australia did achieve that. And for all the carrying on about the deficit that we went into in the process, you know, we're now about to come out of it. And yes, it's taken time to do, but it hasn't been a disaster on the way and probably I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people kept their jobs who would otherwise have lost them. Because we came within a hair's breadth of going into recession and then we drew back into positive growth. And the whole argument that was made as a result of the lessons learnt from the 91 recession, which really was um, probably the worst recession after the Great Depression, uh, and Ken Henry, who was the senior Treasury official at the table in the Rudd era, had also been at the high levels uh, in the Keating recession and had seen it. And he was, a, he was a prime motivating force in persuading Rudd and others that that was the course they should take, and they took it. Rudd was decisive uh, in, his, uh, in, in, in that moment, and, uh, and it worked. But they didn't get the credit for it, because it worked. So people who didn't lose their jobs didn't know what they were thanking him for because many of them wouldn't have known that theirs was the job that was going to be lost. Uh, and, and they didn't make the most of it either. You know, I mean, their communications were patchy. Uh, there were other aspects, you know, I mean, I, um, but, but the, 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 what emerges from that chapter for me is that neither of them comes out covered in glory. Thanks for coming along tonight. Kerry, um, you seem very interested in politics. Did you ever consider that as a career for yourself? Very briefly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a brief answer? Yeah. No, I, I, uh, when I was with Lionel Bowen, and so I'd been, I'd been working after golf, probably I'd been working behind the scenes for about 12 or 18 months. Uh, I was a bit bored because I was working for the deputy opposition leader who didn't like publicity, and I was his press secretary. <laughs> And my job was to organise publicity for him. So there was a slight problem there. Lionel was a lovely guy and, uh, and a very shrewd politician. But he was not a natural media... But well, he was all right on performing in the media, he just didn't like it. Uh, so I was kind of looking at other things to do. And, and through the process, I was getting to know the people who ultimately became um, uh, Bob Hawke's first cabinet. Really talented bunch of people. I was getting to know them. And, uh, and a couple of them would say to me on occasion, why don't you think about going into politics yourself? And I didn't think much of it, but, but enough to ask um, Lionel once 
we're in a light aircraft flying over Western Victoria and it was full of thermals and, and uh, in the middle of all this I said to him, Lionel, um, do you think uh, there is any point, do, do you think I should consider going into politics? He said, no champ. And I'm thinking, well, at least you could have waited 10 seconds. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I said, why? He said, you're too emotional. And, uh, and I think he's right. I mean, I, I, I think that what he was saying really was that it's a tough business being a politician in a democracy. Uh, life is full of compromises. And if you actually care deeply about a policy, uh, and, and you're going to get the bruises along the way, but also the kind of deals that have to be done over numbers and so on. And, and it is a necessary part of a democratic process, not necessarily to the point that we see it being played. The factional process that sort of throws up a situation where half the people representing their party in the parliament are hacks, uh, that's not good. But uh, look, I, uh, it, it didn't take long for me to dismiss the idea out of hand, which told me that I was never, you know, that I wasn't serious, really serious about it myself. So, no. Your thoughts on the demise of Malcolm Turnbull? Where does one start? <laughs> you know, when Turnbull came in, um, I'd just finished the Keating book and I did a, a, a conversation with Paul in the, in, in the Opera House. And it was an extraordinary night. I mean, there were about 2,000, it was capacity. There were even people behind us. And as we walked out onto the stage, there was a standing ovation that lasted for five or six minutes, and it would have gone on for another 10 if we hadn't sat down and asked them to stop. And, and I took that as a sign of just how dissolute, quite, there was genuine affection in the room for him, but it was also, to me, uh, an indicator of how disaffected and disillusioned people had become with the leadership that's come after him, particularly current. And, and so, Turnbull had just become leader. He'd just become prime minister and replaced Abbott. And I said to him something like, so, so how do you think Turnbull will go? He said, oh, he said, I think he might be all right. Mind you, the bar's been set very low, he said. <laughs> so, so even with that low bar, Malcolm Turnbull failed. And, uh, and you know, we, we would all remember the kind of collective sigh of relief, I think, that you could almost hear around the nation uh, when he announced that he was going to challenge and gave that quite inspirational speech where he talked about, you know, the, the sort of the template that he would bring to no the Prime slogans. Ministership. Hmm? No slogans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no slogans. Um, and, uh, and then proceeded to do the exact opposite. And, and was immediate, it, it immediately became obvious that he had somehow foolishly allowed himself to be captured by those extreme nutters at the at the you know at the very end of the spectrum, the conservative spectrum, and and this this divisive figure in Tony Abbott, um, and so here was a guy who had a chance to lead his party back to the conservative centre where it hasn't been really for quite some time. The shift to the to the medium far right really began with Howard. But, um, but Abbott, you know, got his bloody roller skates on and took it about as far as he could. And, uh, and, and so um, Turnbull really had that chance. He doesn't have very good political judgment. And he's arrogant. He's one of those very clever people who just assumes that everyone else in the room is going to agree with him. And when it comes as a shock to him that they don't, 
He dismisses them as fools. And I think, uh, and don't forget, he lost the leadership of his party twice. Losing it to Abbott is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> so don't get, don't get sucked in when he goes on programs like Q&A and, uh, and paints himself as this, this kind of guy who had these great successes like, like um, marriage equality. And someone tweeted, tweeted, no, Malcolm, no, Malcolm, you weren't responsible for marriage equality. Um, don't be gulled by that stuff. Don't be gulled by history being rewritten. Um, because Malcolm Turnbull fundamentally failed this country as Prime Minister. Here, here. And I'm not saying that in any partisan sense. Uh, he's not, and I, and I, you know, that's how history will judge him, I think. Carrie, how can we save the ABC? Uh, I, I think um, exercising your vote, exercise, you know, using your voice. If, uh, if you haven't contemplated joining Friends of the ABC, I think they are a, a quite noble organisation. There are some very bright, very accomplished people who have been a part of Friends of the ABC over many years. They try very hard not to be partisan. Um, and, and never forget, if you are not on the conservative side of politics, that there are many, many people who are conservative who are passionate supporters of the ABC. The ABC does cross the political divide. So that's one way. Um, I, um, I don't know that writing letters to editors um, uh, amount to much, but uh, <coughs> if there are a significant number of you who uh, are passionate ABC supporters, it doesn't hurt to let your local member know if your local member is a part of a, a government that uh, confronts the ABC with a wall of hostility. Uh, the ABC, as we all know, is the most trusted organisation in the country, year after year after year after year, in those independent surveys, most trusted organisation in the country, most trusted news services and current affairs in the country. And as I've said many times, Scott Morrison and, and every other politician in the country would absolutely kill for the reputation and the integrity that, uh, that, that the public sees in the ABC. So, so, you know, back yourself and make your voices heard in whatever way makes sense to you. Uh, Kerry, um, we'll go a bit more contemporary and look at your crystal ball. Uh, detention camps for mass holding of people, authoritarian government, um, media control, so dissemination of information to your people is controlled, entrapment by economic uh, debt, cyber encroachment. Tools are a little bit different. Any parallels to 1932-39, do you think? Well, read... Uh Read an Irish columnist named Fintan O'Toole, F-I-N-T-A-N is his first name. He writes for the Irish Times and he's written two columns this year. He's probably written another one since I read his last one. Um, and he writes about what he calls the pre-fascist era. And he's written it largely around Trump. 
but also around the illiberal governments we're seeing springing up in Europe, you know, like Hungary and Poland, Sweden is the sort of latest in the line, Italy where the uh, interior minister who I think is the deputy leader um, openly expresses his disappointment that he can't uh, um, get rid of every Roman, every gypsy living in Italy uh, because unfortunately for him many of them are actually citizens and so he can't, but it disappoints him. Um, is that pre-fascist? Yes. Um, are there parallels uh, when we talk about, we hear the conversation about fake news, when we see a push by Trump to try to lead his nation not to believe in the credible media of America. Um, he probably doesn't even understand the concept that the media is actually a fundamental underpinning of democracy as much as the parliament. And in fact, both Thomas Jefferson and Edmund Burke in different centuries came to the same view that if you had to make a choice between a free media and an elected parliament, you'd choose a free media. Um, so, China. China? Sorry, what about China? Well, China is an authoritarian country with a, with a command economy uh, and, a, and a ruthless political machine that suppresses um, uh, opposition. It is what it is. You can call it fascist, uh, you can call it communist, you can call it a kind of communist. I mean, we can quibble about the actual words. Uh, that is what China is, it's what China has been for a long time. And uh, will China one day emerge as a kind of a democracy? Um, who knows, it, it's gonna be a long time coming if it is. But um, I, I was just interested recently, uh, part of the book, I mean, I've always been interested in the computer age and its, and its, um, its impacts and, and and uh, how it's going to affect society and the cohesion of society. And I wrote a five-part series on the computer age in 1971 for the Sydney Sun, where a, soci a sociologist who had been a computer analyst uh, expressed the, uh, the fear about, about our capacity as humans to actually keep pace with both the reality and the, and the impact and the import of, of, um, of the development of the digital age, and he's absolutely right to ask that question. I mean, uh, and Stephen Hawking asked a similar question some years later. Um, the future of work is a massive challenge to us, and governments are only just starting to talk about it. Um, so um, I, I think that uh, one of the examples that I came across in the book is that these massive factories in China that are putting iPhones and other, and other such things together for the big American uh, companies, one of those factories has replaced 60,000 workers in the recent past with robots, and uh, by 2020 they are going to replace at least, uh, I think it's um, a third of their workforce uh, with robots. And one of the immediate questions that uh, came to me was, so. When all of these people in China are displaced, because that's been a big part of them building a, a sort of wealth by, of, of tackling poverty uh, and, uh, and of creating a middle class is through jobs. And as many of these jobs are surrendered to robots, how are those 
people in China going to react to that? So that's going to be a massive problem. How are they going to afford to buy the iPhones? Well, there's a wonderful story about the trade union leader and the Ford senior executive standing uh, on the factory floor of a Ford factory. This is in the 1950s in, in America. As these uh, automated machines uh, are there, you know, on the assembly line putting it together, and the executive says to the union leader, how are you going to get him uh, to sign up for your union, Bob? And Bob says, how are you going to get him to buy cars? <laughs> we've, got, we've got time for just one more question here. Kerry, Uncle Roop. Sorry? Roop, Roop, Uncle Roop, Rupert Murdoch. You can call him Uncle seems, if you like. <laughs> seems to have an enormous effect on Australian politics and Britain and America. What can we do to stop him? Well, possibly time will play a part in that. <laughs> but I, I keep reading that uh, Lachlan is even more enthusiastic about the far right than Rupert is. Uh, I don't know. I, um, look, um, to me, the, you look for the principles and you look for the logic in these things. And so when you're talking about media policy and media ownership and media diversity in Australia, and obviously you've got to have critical mass, particularly in this day and age, for, for a media um, company to be viable. Um, but, but the logic to me is that for any one individual to own 70% or possibly even more now of Australia's uh, print output for a start. And, and, and it's not enough to say, oh, well, look, it's all conversion, it's different now, and, and that's, that's been diminished, that power is diminished. Uh, the fact is that, that that output still has an enormous influence around the country and through the rest of the media. And it's not just, it's not just in the people who might read the Courier Mail, the Australian, the Telegraph in Sydney, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, and the Mercury in Hobart, and and the advertiser in Adelaide and so on, or listen to Andrew Bolt. Uh, and in fact, that doesn't matter so much. <laughs> but, but, but certainly the, the cycle of politicians who line up at the door of Fox to go on every day, uh, that has import because they, you know, that gets disseminated too. But um, I just think it's fundamentally unhealthy and actually undemocratic for one person to own that much of our media. And, and it doesn't matter who it is. It, it uh, possibly comes into sharper relief uh, when that person has such extreme views as, as Rupert seems to perpetrate these days. And uh, one of his editors, Bruce Guthrie, who was sacked and subsequently wrote a book, and Guthrie was the editor of the Herald Sun, which is a kind of the crown and the jewels. It's not the Australian, it's the crown and, and the, 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 the jewel, big jewel in the crown whatever the bloody metaphor is. Um, it, the, the Herald Sun is the, certainly the biggest selling publication in Rupert's stable, and this guy was the editor. And what he says is, in his book, the editors know what Rupert wants. He doesn't have to tell them. So it's a, the kind of worst sort of censorship at all. of all. It's a sort of self-censorship. And yes, there are some great journalists working for News Corp, and they don't have many choices of employment which is another one of the problems. There is not a great deal of diversity. There's diversity, the more diversity for us, if we use the internet intelligently, we can roam the world. You know, we can read New Yorker, we can read The Guardian, we can read The New York Times, you name it. 
Um, but, uh, but that's not the point about our news here in Australia. So, I mean, that, what you do about it, um, you've got your right to not buy the publications if you so choose, um, which is probably the thing that hurts the most. Uh, once again, you can certainly make... And, and sometimes just the sheer volume. You, you can probably organise campaigns, not so much to Rupert, that's water off a duck's back, but to your local politician, not, not to prime ministers. That stuff probably doesn't even get opened, or if it does, it doesn't get very far. But your local member, particularly in a marginal seat, your local member is constantly testing the winds. No such thing up here? <laughs> Senate. There is the Senate. There is the Senate. Anyway, we've run out of time. And both sides, because it was Labor. <laughs> it was Labor that brought the policy in that allowed Rupert to buy the Herald and Weekly Times. And yes, he surrendered a television network to do it, but he knew what he was doing. Please put your hands together for Kerry. Thank you.